1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
2: This episode of The Hash is sponsored by Bitstamp.
3: everyone it's thursday and you are watching the hash on coindesk tv you might be listening to us on the coindesk podcast network we appreciate you for joining us from wherever you are i'm jensen Assey on today's show we got will foxley zach seward and david Morris, a big interview happened last night, and Zach is going to kick us off.
0: That's right, Jen. I was one of many glued to my screen watching this thing unfold. Truly a remarkable moment, no matter how you feel about the whole situation. Of course, we're talking about Sam Bankman-Fried, former FTX CEO, in conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Deal Book Conference. Truly, truly a crazy interview, an hour and 12 minutes long. Of lots of strange moments, including this one, we'll see this clip now. Right now, I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month. Um, this has not been a fun month for me, but that's not what matters here. Like, what matters here is the millions of customers. What matters here is all the stakeholders in FTX uh, who who got hurt, and and trying to do everything I can to help them out, and you know, as long as that's the case, like, I don't think that, I don't think that, you know, what happens with me is the important part of that. And I don't think that's what it makes sense for me to be focusing on. Very bizarre laugh track thing aside, lots was shared in this conversation. Maybe not necessarily what's at the heart of the matter, but certainly a lot of hemming hawing and potential spin as to how Sam Bankman fried is trying to position himself in the wake of FTX's catastrophic collapse. I am to toss this straight to David. I know you were watching this as well, David. What are your thoughts about the SVF interview? Uh, There's many things to discuss uh, this morning.
2: Yeah, it's it's very strange um, what he might be thinking. Um, I think that uh, there is this broader trend of these crypto guys who can't seem to shut their mouths after they commit large frauds and crimes um and uh so th- i think the question right now is is sam bankman-fried being very smart or very stupid or both if you're a lawyer and he said his uh his lawyers have asked him not to say anything at the same time um while he is apologizing in sort of vague terms he is not really uh getting to the heart of the matter which is uh, he he seems to genuinely believe that it's not a big deal, that there was no separation between Alameda uh, and FTX and their operations and the flows of funds. He, he really doesn't seem to get it. I, I, I think I might be jumping the gun. a li- Well, let's go to Jen. And then I have a t- tweet about it that we can share in a bit.
3: Yeah, David, you know, I think that Sam was so used to being the media darling. Right. Having everyone love him. And I wonder if if that that like learned energy and what he got out of being this this savior like everyone was calling him in the media just months ago has gotten to his head and he is really trying to grasp at straws to just regain any kind of the reputation that he had back. Unfortunately, the facts are against him and last night when I was watching this interview, every single time he said, you know, what's important here is the customers. I want to do my best to ensure that customers can be made whole or can be made some semblance of whole it just felt like a lie because if what he really cared about was the customers i don't think we would have been in this situation and i know there are a lot of opinions on how the interview went i think andrew sorkin did a good job i think he asked all of the questions that you know i had at the top top of my head i think he did a good job at pressing Sam in the time that he had, but Sam just really kind of gave us the runaround. I don't feel like we got any more information. I, I don't feel like I believe him that what's important for him at the end of the days is, is the customer. Because when Sorkin read that email from the customer who wrote to the New York Times and said, you know, I lost my life savings, he pointed to the terms and conditions of FTX saying that customer funds will not be used in the way that they were used. I didn't feel a lot of empathy from Sam and I ended up going to bed just feeling like, "Ugh, what just happened? I wish I didn't watch this before I went to bed because I'm not going to sleep well. But David, I'll kick it back up to you for that tweet.
2: Yeah, I I, not only did I not feel any empathy, I didn't even feel any comprehension from Sam. Like he genuinely does not seem to like understand what he did wrong. And I think, you know, this is this resonates with another crypto scam that we've dealt with fairly recently. Uh, which was the UST and Terra scam, where Do Kwon um, is at least doing a really good job and continues to of acting like a guy who's just dumb, and that seems to be what is being revealed about Sam Bankman Freed here to some extent. He's just not as smart as everybody seemed to think he was, and so he just waves his hands, and that's as good as he can do on some level. Of course, at the same time, and this is the question. Maybe that's a pose or maybe, you know, there's part of his brain that really believes that. And the other part is saying, "Okay, act like this now. That'll do a good job of of convincing people. Zach.
0: I mean, I'm in the camp that this is definitely not 4D chess, Mm -hmm. right? I think this is just some sort of weird personal truth that is manifesting itself in this weird, jittery way that Sam bankman fried has had for a long time. I think Andrew Ross Orkin deserves a lot of credit here. There's a lot of sort of cheap conspiracy theorizing out there. The New York Times is sort of putting SBF on some pedal, pedestal for, for hero worship. When indeed what we saw was a cross-examination, right? There was a lot of room for Sam bankman fried to say things that will potentially be incriminating further down the line, including some key dates in terms of when he knew what was going on. Those are probably going to be counterposed to some public statements that were made after those dates. In which in the interview he said, okay, that's when I knew that things were going bad. So, uh, you know, I think sort of like the NYT boogeyman in the crypto community here is really misplaced. And this ended up being just a really fascinating conversation that I thought was pretty capably handled by Andrew Ross Sorkin in this instance. We should also mention that, you know, th- this is a media tour at this point. SPF is on a media tour with Good Morning America. He taped an interview prior to the deal book appearance with George Stephanopoulos that aired this morning. In which many of the same sentiments were expressed, including sort of this uh, this very pregnant pause when asked repeatedly about the question, "Did you know that there was the commingling of customer assets over on the Alameda trading side of the house?" So it is strange to see this sort of publicity campaign in which SPF is trying to uh, reframe things in a way that he thinks is favorable to him, while also I think the lawyers in the room are saying, "Wow, that's a lot of damning information that's coming out in a public setting that may not." Good down the line, but will got to get your thoughts on this one. Just a just a crazy moment all around. Yeah, thirty
1: seconds before we go to the next story, which might be similar. Talking about Mike Novogratz's appearance this morning on TV, and I think he characterized this whole thing very well when he just called Sam delusional. Like that whole interview with New York Times yesterday was bizarre. The Good Morning America appearance this morning was also pretty bizarre. If you watch that, uh, like you said, Zach, he was asked point blank if he knew about commingled funds and he paused for like 30 seconds and then gave an answer and then even tried to contextualize it. So it's a pretty obvious gambit that he's lying or trying to be deceitful in some way. And I think just Mike Novogratz's point really is important here. He's delusional at this point. I think what we're seeing is someone's life completely implode in front of him. Maybe he didn't think this was going to happen. It certainly has. And it's been a spectacle. And now he's going on a media tour, saying yes to everything, tweeting odd stuff, talking to YouTubers at odd hours of the nights. It's a a really bizarre situation. Zach, back up to you.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's also just like some bizarro world scenario where this PR coup actually works. I'm not necessarily in that camp just yet. Uh, And I think maybe what's being sought for here is a win in the court of public opinion. If maybe down the line, the legal system won't be so kind, but SBF is trying his damnedest to uh, gin up some goodwill here in the rubble. Anyway, let's change stories. David, I'm tossing it to you.
2: Yeah, so uh, I have a story out yesterday that really tries to explain why the framing that Sam Bankman-Fried has presented in these various interviews is not just confused, but actively deceptive. And it's because there are very clear crimes that took place. And you know there are some nuances having to do with jurisdiction, Obviously, uh, it's a question of whether these specific things are going to be able to be pursued. And as by way of sort of transition, uh, this is a tweet that I I, I posted last night while I was watching the interview that uh, captures both, I think, the the core of his deception and also my uh, slightly visceral emotional reaction, which is why there's a little bit blanked out there. But there are so many dimensions to this, and I, I really would encourage people to read the piece. But I think that the core things are summed up here, which is that you he talks a lot in the interview about the margin position got bigger than I thought. The margin position was too big. Um, and I was surprised. He's acting like he had no idea. In fact, FTX had created and the bankruptcy lawyers figured this out. FTX had created a special exemption for Alameda Research that prevented them from getting stopped out on margin positions. Uh, they, they essentially could go as far negative as they wanted to on their trades without having their collateral liquidated. Um, and, and that creates incredible competitive advantages for them uh, on, a, on a derivatives exchange um, and, and creates huge risks for the users. Um, and the other thing that I think I really want to hammer home, there's nothing more important in the debate right now than this. Describing this as a bank run is deceptive. And anybody who describes it as a bank run is helping Sam Bankman-Fried conceal his crimes. That needs to be hammered home as hard as possible. A crypto exchange is not a bank. They should not be loaning your assets to anyone, much less an affiliated margin trading firm hedge fund that has a special privilege to trade itself into debt on the exchange. I mean, it's insane. There is no rationalization. There is no justification. This is criminal fraud. Um, I'm sorry, I will let's rant for a minute if anybody wants to jump in so I don't uh, yell myself hoarse here.
3: You know, and you want to explain night, why
2: the uh, exempt. Oh, sorry, Jen, go ahead.
3: I'll just go quickly and then Will can take it over. In last night's interview, he said, I think near the end of the interview, or maybe one of the last things he said was at times he saw himself as a marketer for FTX. And I took issue to that because he insinuated that marketers at times <sighs> maybe bend the truth or hide information. Mm. And it just makes me heaven look... Heaven forbid. <laughs> Marketers don't do that and shouldn't do that, especially in this space. It makes me go back in time and look at everything that he said with a grain of salt. Like, What was true? When, when did Sam see himself as a marketer? Was he always hiding things from us? I know, David, you pointed out in your article, the bailouts piece, And and after last night's interview and after reading your article, I look at these bailouts in a totally different light. Was he just covering his butt? Did he know what was happening all along and he was just, you know, putting band-aids over holes and trying to make this house of cards not fall? It is just so I don't know, upsetting. I'm getting emotional too, David. Will
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'll Uh, sign real quick and throw it back up to David. The thing that really stands out to me is the line of questioning all these interviews. They're not very sophisticated and that's okay because it's not very crypto native people asking these questions or even finance people, right? This whole conversation has blown up so large that mainstream media is now involved. And we just have classic talking heads in mainstream media talking to Sam bankman fried as opposed to crypto journalists or crypto natives. And if we look at the crypto native side of things, there are some important questions that still need to be answered such as when did Alameda get into this bad debt? Uh, we had the Terra Luna crash earlier this year. That blew out a lot of different hedge funds. That blew out Three Euros Capital. That blew up all these different lending firms. And a lot of people have speculated that that was the cause, or at least the first hiccup. But then there's stuff even going back further, right? With GBTC, which is a very popular trading instrument in crypto, going negative. That discount, that premium disappeared. And a lot of people were underwater because of that instrument going negative negative. And so we can back up the truck even further. Then there's questions about the ties between Alameda and FTX. And there's some on-chain analysis showing that, hey, they've been trading back and forth since the inception of the two. And uh, there's been some lies between SBF and others saying that, no, they've, they've been separate for a very long time, or maybe they were working together at the beginning and then later they separated. So I think there's still like a lot of on-chain analysis and crypto questions that need to be asked. And I'm looking forward to more of that coming out I think we're going to have to wait a while for those to be Yeah, sorry, Zach, Zach, we have a hard out,
2: so I need to do one thing before we go here. Um, This is obviously very complex. We had a tweet earlier today come out where the head of the CFTC is calling this a classic run, so even he doesn't understand what's going on. And if you are among the many who are confused, we have something for you. I have a show that we have created that will be coming out early next year called Crypto Crooks, where we, as people who really know what we're talking about, go into depth on some of these things. So keep an eye out. We will be out in early January talking first about BitConnect. Uh, And uh, I think we are now going to a quick break and we'll be back with two more stories.
0: BitConnect. Yeah, we won't talk about BitConnect (laughs) after the break. We'll talk about some good old fashioned crypto money laundering. And we'll also talk about BlackRock talking about tokenized assets. We'll get away from the SBF conversation for just a bit on the other side of the hash. Stick with us. Thanks are tough, particularly for crypto, but Bitstamp's different. Bitstamp is the longest running crypto exchange and among the most regulated in the world, which includes a bit license in New York and a payment institution license in Europe. And when it comes to your funds, with Bitstamp, your crypto belongs to you. All your fiat and crypto are kept 100% separated. It's why CryptoCompare ranked Bitstamp the number one crypto exchange, awarding them the highest possible AA rating. Learn more at bitstamp.net.
3: Okay, let's get back into the stories. You are watching The Hash. Before the break, we were talking about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried at the New York Times Deal Book event. And now we're talking about BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, who was also in attendance. He also had exposure to FTX. So he said yesterday that the next generation for markets and securities will be the tokenization of securities. This would enable different ways to trade assets like real estate, stocks, bonds, and more, making all transfers visible to the public. I know last year we saw some trading platforms try this, but then they wound it down pretty quickly. I'm going to kick this off to Zach. What do you make of Larry's comments?
0: Well, I did want to go in on the FTX thing really quick. So they disclosed that they lost 24 million. BlackRock lost 24 million uh, due to its FTX investment, which, you know, that's pretty significant. I mean, hey, what's 24 million among friends? But still, that's, that's pretty bad that uh, BlackRock was among those impacted by this collapse. So anyway, just putting mm-hmm. a finer point on that before we move on to the broader thrust of this one. Yeah, sure. Tokenized assets, great. I don't know. Like, is it better than existing systems for doing that, uh, given that it's going to be potentially run by, you know, centralized entities who want to maintain control of how these things are settled? I don't know. I don't know if I'm bullish on this. I don't know if this is the same story as security tokens that we saw oh, many moons ago when that was going to be a promising use case for crypto technology. I don't know. I'm kind of bearish on this one until proven otherwise. But hey, if they're going to advance this in a meaningful way, maybe BlackRock is enough, uh, enough of a force to get some momentum behind it. But I'm going to, I don't know. I'm feeling kind of, kind of bearish. I'll toss it to David.
2: Yeah. I, I think that um, just to, to get down to brass tacks on this one, um, the reason this is appealing is that they, the, the current systems for trading securities are pretty limited jurisdictionally, right? You have cross-border limitations for who can invest and things like that. The problem is that you have the technology to go cross-border. You can just do whatever you want with a digital asset. Uh, But then do you have a regulatory and property rights regime to support that? Because especially if you're talking about equity, it's not like you can just have that token in your wallet and it means anything. You have to actually have the legal system in place to uh, support that ownership claim. And as we saw, again, with FTX, uh, that's not really working right now if you're talking globally, right? They had weird stock linked derivatives that they said were like stocks. That uh, is another whole layer of what they were doing. That's insane. Um, so so really, I think the question is not so much technology, it's regulatory and, and legal um, as to whether this will will actually take off. Uh, will or Jen, or I guess Will has a comment. Yeah, I'll sag it. I think the other question
1: on here is not just the legal framework, which I'm glad you brought up because it's certainly key. I think it's also on the technology front. Like who wants to use Ethereum base layer chain to flip stocks right now? Wouldn't it be a great experience? You're going to have to wait for layer twos or something else to pop up and increase transaction limits, increase volume, incre- increase throughput, decrease fees in order for something like this to be possible, like building Robinhood on top of Ethereum right now isn't quite possible. There's a few things like it. I think DYDX and some other token exchanges do bring like a pretty seamless platform. Uh, but you know, adding Uniswap and securities and tokens is in one bundle. I don't think it's quite ready for prime time. It'd be quite a bummer to be trying to dump your account on Uniswap, like all your securities or all your shares of some company. And there's just too high of a transaction fee to get through. So you end up with nothing. And that has happened to many a token holder throughout the last few years, so I don't think there's really a technological uh, solution to the thing he's bringing up at this moment. Jen, back over to you.
3: Yeah, it sounds like these insights came out of some research. So back in April, uh, Fink was talking to the Wall Street Journal and he said that BlackRock was studying crypto broadly. So that included stable coins. As you know, BlackRock is invested in Circle It it included looking at these like tokenized securities, among other things. But I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk uh, and bring up another point from this talk yesterday. Uh, Larry said that he thinks that many crypto firms are going to shut down after the fallout from FTX. So it seemed like he had, you know, a lot of insight to share on, FT, on uh, crypto. He is not bullish on centralized exchanges. And it sounds like this is maybe just some insights that have come from their broad research. Zach?
0: Yeah, I mean, I will say the case for this may be working is that like if you bring real world real world assets, right, RWAs, which are actually productive out in the real world, not just among the crypto coins. If you bring RWAs into the world of DeFi, the potential for real yield in these instances becomes much more attractive, right? And so if you can tokenize these things, represent them on chain, there might be a more sustainable version of DeFi that could uh, advance in the future. So again, let's see if this works. If it does, it could be really potential potentially powerful for what DeFi will ultimately represent. Anyway, well, I'm tossing it to you for our last story of the day. Did you guys know that the US Postal Service has an enforcement
1: arm? I did not. And this story has it all. According to US prosecutors, 21 have been alleged money mules for moving money into cryptocurrencies and then moving it around the globe on behalf of different scam artists. This article on Coindesk right now has a lot of different stories linked in it. The total volume for this trafficking is about $300 million. So pretty sizable amount of money. All these instances are smaller than that, about $3 million and smaller. It's just individual people who have been assisting scams, moving money internationally using you know, your favorite type of coin of choice, maybe crypto, maybe stable coins, maybe something else. Pretty interesting story just to sort of zoom out. Remember that, yes, crypto is here. Yes, there's crypto adoption, but we might not like how it's being used. David, I want to throw this one up to you. I think this falls in line with some of the other stories that you've worked on in the past.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, my first thought about this is to point out that they got caught. Um, And uh, I think that's that's pretty significant that there is, you know, there's police work that goes into finding criminal networks. Um, And and it wasn't, you know, just something that they were able to make secret because they did it through Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is not actually that useful for crime. And eventually, I think criminals will figure it out. I mean, I, I don't know the specifics of the investigation here. But they obviously used some real world intelligence, probably combined with the transparency of the Bitcoin blockchain to be able to figure out what was going on. Um, and so, you know, you, you do see stories like this. And I, I hate to sound like such a homer, but I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, Bitcoin is a part of this, but um, it's, it's not the defining feature. And at least in this case, it's not necessarily what enabled the fraud. It was just one of the ways they decided to execute it. Zach, you got any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's very spot on. I mean, I think,
0: you know, the, the chain analysis of the, the of the world feast on stuff like this, right? Chainalyses. analyses. Yeah. yes. I think it's chain Wow, sponsoring crypto. I just, I just plug them, the sponsor of <laughs> Crypto Crooks. Dang it. Anyway, those <laughs> firms such as TRM Labs, Chainalysis, and others probably feast on these things because there's on-chain crumbs that, like, lead back to where the source of these nefarious deeds are and again, these are open ledgers. They, they give the ability for law enforcement and others within the industry to self-regulate. I've argued before that, that I think that's a huge feature and not a bug of the crypto world. And that the openness and the ability to self-regulate these technologies is what gives it a fighting chance to advance and continue to exist in a way that's not super scary to regulators. So anyway, I think that like that's, this is the story here. Like The idea that Bitcoin is some super secret shadowy money. That is going to help you get your, you know, your, your affinity scams or I don't know what was it here? It was like it was like dating scams or something was mentioned. Romance scams, I think. Romance scams. There you romance go. Romance to help to help you execute your romance scams flawlessly. I mean, that's gotta, dating, that's gotta that's gotta go that's gotta go out the window, right? That's not really what what Bitcoin is about. So, you know, I think we've seen over the years tons of these examples of like just regular old crime that touches Bitcoin in some way. Oftentimes, Bitcoin is the clue that leads back. To these actors, I'm not sure if that was what happened in this instance, but sometimes those are indeed um, that that does indeed end up being true. So, yeah, one for the crime beat, one from the from run for the crime docket here. But I'll toss it to Jen, our uh, our, our resident semi lawyer.
3: I had the same takeaway as everyone else on the show. I was reading this and was like, I just want to point out that 21 people were caught committing crimes that involved money laundering and crypto. And we didn't need any more regulation. Can you believe that? We just needed the law enforcers to do their jobs. It didn't take any more regulation. And the criminals were caught. Will, wrap us up.
1: I think you guys are focused on the entirely wrong point here. And that is that the US Postal Service has an enforcement arm. And I want to note (laughs) that they do have the ability to carry deadly weapons, according to my 30 second Google search. Korra, they do have the ability to bear arms. So if you see someone out there carrying a package and a weapon, be careful. They might be coming to indict you with a warrant. Just be careful out there.
0: Yep. And that was the last time Will was on the show because he went to get a job as a, as a, as a postal inspector. Honestly, that'd be so cool. Enforcer? Person. Yeah.
1: If
3: you were a postal door-to-door job, enforcer?
0: friendly neighborhood yeah. man,
1: get a pet dogs, and you get to carry a holster. I
0: mean, it's pretty, pretty cool. Get a sweet uniform too. I think you even get a hat. Yeah. Anyway. All yeah. right. That's it for the show today. Thanks for being with us here on Coindesk TV. You're watching The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. That's David Morris, Jen Sinassi, and Will Foxley we were happy to be with you here today. Happy December. November was pretty bleak for the crypto world. Let's see what December has in store. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks so much. Bye.
3: You've been listening to The Hash
0: on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line The Hash or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.